All right. Hey, good morning. Yes, good morning. It is a good morning, isn't it? Uh, for most of us, I assume it is. Uh, my name is Dwight. I'm one of the pastors here. And um, I already preached this once this morning. So uh, if you don't know much about our church, uh, we, during COVID, we decided that uh, we were going to break up our church in the best possible way. Churches sometimes divide for not good reasons. And uh, we divided out into uh, five different locations. And we're seeing what that looks like for the rest of the year. And so downtown kind of took the biggest hit from that. Uh, and yet all these new faces uh, have appeared. And yet we're also in summer realities. And so people vacationing. So it's actually been quite encouraging to think about what's been going on uh, downtown. And uh, some of you I've never met before. It's the first time you're wearing a lovely mask or not. And uh, I'm so glad that you're here. And we've been tracking in the book of Mark. So Mark is a book in the New Testament. The Bible is broken into two big sections. First part, uh, Old Testament. Second part, New Testament. And the first four books in the New Testament uh, talk about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And you might be hearing resurrection. Like, that's cuckoo. Like, I don't believe in that. And I would say, I'm with you. You know, like years ago, I was there as well. So I have a lot of empathy and, uh, and understanding of where you'd be coming from. And so our, our hope is not to just do a little religious exercise or hear a nice long TED Talk. Like, I'm not going to make any promises. This is a short TED Talk. Um, but God actually works through sermons. And I've been sitting uh, and listening to sermons before, and it was like that person speaking wasn't even speaking. It was like someone else was speaking to my heart. And that's what God actually does. And so we want to open up uh, the text that Evan just read for us and explain and work our way through it and then uh, put some encouragement and challenges that go along with it. And that's basically what a sermon is. And at the end of the sermon, Jesus should be the hero. Uh, he should be uh, bigger, more uh, incredible to you uh, than before. Or you might have new um, answers to the questions that you had, but I'm really glad that you're here. So let me pray again, and praying is really just talking to God, and so we can do it here. Uh, there's no magical mantra that we have to perform. It's just a conversation with him. So let me pray. God, thank you that you reveal yourself to be a, a good God, a God that always does what is good, right, and true. Even when we don't believe that about you, um, you, you are who you are. You exist um, according to your characteristics, according to your being, not to who we want you to be. So would you take any uh, preconceived ideas that we have as we walk in here today about uh, who you are and what you've done, and would you help dismantle those and rebuild them according to your truth? Would you speak to our hearts? Would you do that thing I was speaking about before where it feels like someone else is actually speaking, not Dwight at the front? Would your words uh, override all of mine? And would you convince us of your goodness and truth? And uh, we love you and we need you for everything. Amen. So Mark chapter 6, we've been going through very slowly, and we're going to stick in the book of Mark until about next Easter with a few uh, sermon series in the middle. But so far, following Jesus has kind of been like a dream. Um, the disciples who were called by Jesus to follow him, they've seen him heal people. They've seen him, last week we saw a resurrection happen of a little girl who had died. There's been healings, there's been crowds that show up. Everywhere he goes, the paparazzi, like Jesus would have been the biggest TikTok influencer that there was, right? Jesus's fame is spreading everywhere. His power is being seen. And it's like the disciples have this high. They're like high on Jesus in a sense. And I don't know if you've ever, in Christian world, sometimes we have these things called Christian camps, and people go to them, and they make these, you know, incredible promises, like some Thursday night at a campfire, there's some song playing, and some guy speaks, and like everyone starts crying, and they pick up a stick, and they throw it in the fire, and they're like, I'm never going to do that thing ever again, and like they make all these, you know, great, it, it's great, it's good, it's wonderful, it has its place, but that campfire moment isn't enough to keep you going for the rest of your life. Usually the week later, you're, right, you're, you're back doing some of the same things. But these disciples are really experiencing this incredible spiritual high of following Jesus. And what Mark 6 does, it's kind of like a wake-up moment where reality hits them. It's not just all these spiritual highs that you're going to experience, but real life is going to take place. People aren't always going to like you. Things aren't going to go the way you want them to. You don't roll into town expecting a red carpet to be there everywhere because most places it's 
not. It's really hard. And if you've been following Jesus for any amount of time, you would know this to be true as well. That following Jesus isn't always what you thought it was going to be or what you think it's going to be. And it's not going to be the thoughts that you currently have of what it is. And so this passage actually is Jesus saying to his disciples, are you really willing to count, count the cost? Do you still want to follow me? Do you still want to follow me? And this is good for us, right? If you're not a follower of Jesus, it's a moment for you to say, do I want to follow him? And if you are currently following him, do you still want to keep following him? Is he worth it? And so Mark shows us the reality of this in the text. And I would just say this, if, if the Bible is made up, and I know this isn't like the super intellectual answer you're looking for, but if the Bible is made up, it would have been really dumb to put a passage like this in there. Because what this passage is showing is that following Jesus isn't all rainbows and unicorns all the time, right? It's not all of your wildest dreams coming true. In fact, it's a lot of, it's a lot of hardship. It's real life. So if you have a Bible, you can go to Mark chapter 6. If you don't have a Bible, there's some Bibles on that table back there, which we'd love to give. It's not wrong to steal a Bible from this place. It's not stealing. It's a gift. So don't think of it as, oh, I took home a Bible. Do you know how many places I've preached at and I've taken Bibles from that place accidentally? So many. That's my confession. All right, Mark chapter 6, verse 1 to 6. I'm going to read it again, and then we'll look at this. Jesus went away from there. And came to his hometown of Nazareth. And his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, so this would have been a Saturday, on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue like a church gathering. And many who heard him were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? What is this wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Isn't this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief and he went about among the villages teaching. So here's, here's what's going on. The world out there loves Jesus. They might not love everything about him, but everywhere, everywhere that Jesus is going, people are flocking to him. They want to hear him. They want to see him. They want to be around him. They want to touch his garment. They want to they be near him. And when he comes home, it's like, oh, it's you again? You're, dis, you're just a boy from Nazareth, right? I grew up in a little town of 6,000 people. Nobody would ever be impressed with anyone from that place. Doesn't matter how big you are, what you've done, you come back, it's like, ah, you're just from Standish, right? You're just trying to like work out the Standish from you, but you can't, right? You're just from this place. And as Jesus comes in and he teaches and is doing kind of what I'm doing right now in the synagogue, people are whispering like, well, like where did he get this? What books do we have that he was reading where he came up with this, this wisdom and this knowledge? Like this guy seems like he's too good for us. And that's really the, the emphasis and what they would have been feeling is like, who does he think he is? To come back here and show off in our midst like this? He speaks like no one from Nazareth. He's forgotten his roots. He's forgotten where he's come from. He couldn't know this stuff. He's one of us. They were offended by his wisdom. Secondly, they were offended by the mighty works he was doing. They heard about the healing that he was doing out there. But they're like, come on, buddy, you're a carpenter. You're not a healer. Like, put some wood together. Make a bench or something. Like, don't make wrists function again. You don't do that. We don't do that from here. We have a good Nazareth community hospital that takes care of all that stuff. We don't need Jesus the healer. We need Jesus the carpenter because grandma's room is about to cave in. You see, instead of embracing the adequacy of Jesus for them, they reject their inadequacy. I'll say that again. Instead of embracing the sufficiency and adequacy of Jesus, they reject their inadequacy and insufficiency. And this is a problem. This is what bothers them. And I would say this is still what bothers people about Jesus. Because everyone likes Jesus. Everyone wants Jesus on their, well, okay, I was born in the United States if you were to watch a, and I'm a Canadian, all right, born in the U.S., if you were to watch an American election, everyone wants Jesus on their side, 
right? Everyone wants their version of Jesus. But the moment that Jesus actually shows up and shows them their inadequacy, they're offended by him. No, I don't like that version of Jesus. It's like, no, no, this is the real Jesus. This is the Jesus that comforts and offends. This is the, the version of Jesus that woos and wows, but also is not going to leave you the way that you are. You see, people like the adequacy of Jesus, but they don't like acknowledging that there's an inadequacy and an insufficiency about them. Furthermore, we don't like it when someone comes in and says, you've been living this way your whole entire life, but now, because I'm here, you have to live a radically different life. Isn't that exciting? When someone comes and tells you, you're doing everything wrong, just change everything to be the way that I want it to be. This is what offends that town. Who are you to come back to Nazareth, unappreciative of your upbringing, and tell us the way that things are supposed to be? I don't know if you've ever been uh, rejected by family and friends before, but it's one of the most painful things that you can ever go through. It's one thing to be rejected by you know, the government employee who doesn't want to receive you today for your you know, renewing of your RAMQ card or something. Like you can, you can deal with that, with that rejection. But being rejected by your entire family and your entire social circle brings a deep kind of pain that's hard to scrub. And this is what Jesus actually goes through. So if you've been rejected, Jesus understands you. And this is really important because we forget the fact that Jesus has walked through things that are extremely similar to what we've gone through. That if you've been rejected, Jesus understands you. And when we come into a place where we're going to experience rejection if we act a certain way, right? You don't go to a vegan restaurant and bring your own meat, do you? Right? It's, <laughs> you just don't. I guess, I, I don't know. Maybe someone's tried. But I remember we went, Jess and I went to a restaurant, what was the name of it? Zero, zero eight. It, I don't think it exists anymore because they yelled at people like me or scold them. But we went in and Jess has celiac disease and a few other allergies. And so we're making our order and I ordered broccoli and I'm like, could you put, just put some cheese on it? And the woman looked at me repulsed. She's like, we do not have cheese here. I'm like, oh, I'm, I'm so sorry. Like, I'm so sorry. Right? You just, you just don't, don't do those, those things. But when you're going into a place where you know you're going to be rejected for something, what's the temptation? To what? To not go or to fit in, right? To fit in. Uh, I just probably just took one of my kids to the washroom, but um, when we go to Indiana, I'd say this if she was here too. When we go to Indiana, uh, I've, that's where she's from originally. And sometimes like we'll finish a day and her and I will be talking and I'm like, hey, who were you today? And she's like, what do you mean? I'm like, oh, you just, you, you were different, not bad different, but just different. She's like, oh, this is Indiana Jess. I'm like, oh, okay. Like there's a different way of, of being where she's from than where I'm usually at, right? And so it's Indiana Jess. And she just naturally fits in to that reality. And the temptation is for us, if we're going to be rejected, that we just fit in. We compromise and we fit in to the way that things are supposed to be. But Jesus in going home, that would have been one of his temptations. He was tempted in every way that we were tempted. But Jesus, instead of just saying, hey, let me read a little scroll, and then we'll go and we'll have the, the barbecue at Grandma Jojo's or something. Like, we will, I realize there is a Jojo here. Jojo's not a grandma. But I can imagine that Jojo would be a cool grandma if she is that one day. But let's go to Grandma Momo's, right? New name. Grandma Momo's, right? So Jesus could just fit in, read the thing, go do the barbecue, and not really address the things that he's addressing in the rest of the world. But he doesn't do that. Why? Because he loves the people at the synagogue of Nazareth so much that he wants for them to be offended in such a way that they would get to encounter truth with love. Though Jesus had no honor in Nazareth, he had all the honor in the kingdom of God that could be had. It was his. And so he, he was working in this, this world. It was like simultaneous worlds. If you've seen Stranger Things, you know what I'm talking about. There are these two worlds that are, that are overlapping. There's the, the regular world, and then there's like the upside down world. And they look the same, except one world kind of has like lint falling and flying around, and there's demagogues and all these wild things there. 
But Jesus in this world had no honor, but yet in the kingdom of God had all the honor. And so Jesus wasn't going to the synagogue and going to Nazareth hoping to get a, a, a dopamine kick from the honor and the likes that he would receive on his posts. Rather, he was going with all the honor from the kingdom of God and bringing it into the kingdom of this world to say, this is available to all of you, that you can be accepted into the kingdom of God. And here's the thing about Jesus's ministry. His ministry was of constant rejection. It wasn't just in Nazareth, it was his whole life. Now, it would be a really strange thing if we said to um, Alyssa, like, hey, Alyssa, we'll have you come to the front after Alyssa's gonna start a new ministry, everyone. Uh, we're gonna give her a ministry of rejection and we're gonna pray for her and we're gonna send her out into the city and she's gonna go and be rejected everywhere, all right? That'd be very strange. But yet, in a very real sense, that was Jesus's ministry. Everywhere he went, he was rejected everywhere, even until the cross. So as Jesus goes to the cross, um, he, he said seven things that we know about from the cross. And one of the, the most um, strange things that he says is actually from the Bible. He's hanging on the cross and he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? My God, why have you rejected me? In essence, dad. My dad, why have you rejected me? And Jesus cries us out, one, because he's fulfilling scripture, but two, he's crying that out in our place. He's saying, my God, why have you rejected me so that all of us who will submit to Jesus as our king and our savior never have to have proceed from our lips those words, my God, why have you forsaken me? You do not have to be forsaken by God because Jesus was forsaken and rejected in your place. 2 Corinthians 5, 21, a book in the New Testament, uh, Paul's talking about this, and he says, he who knew no sin, so Jesus became sin. He was rejected so that we might become the righteousness of God so that we might become unrejected, so that we might become regenerate, might come to life. Jesus went to the cross as a substitute in our place so that we could be brought to life and never be rejected by God. Now this, I don't know what kind of good news you're gonna hear in the city today. There might be like two for one uh, sorbet specials or something. There might be half off of Portuguese chicken, like great good news down, down the street. But Evan, there's better news. There's better news, brother, than Portuguese chicken half off or two for one. And this is that you will never, ever be rejected by God. And this should move in your heart. If this doesn't move in your heart, there's something that, that's wrong. There's something that's wrong. Because this isn't just information. This will transform the way you live. If you walk around knowing that I can't ultimately be rejected, you are so free. You are fr so free. You are not at the, the whims of anyone's opinion anymore. Because the only one who's, whose ultimate opinion the one whose opinion actually matters has received you in Jesus. And he's fitting you now for the kingdom of God. He's changing you to be a full player and part in his kingdom forever. But here's the thing, rejection is gonna happen. In a sense, we wouldn't just call up Alyssa, we would call up everyone and say, we're all going to have this ministry of rejection in a sense. But the flip side of that is that some are actually going to believe. Some people that we share about who Jesus is are going to believe. And that's what happened with Jesus. Some rejected and some received. Some threw stones and some threw themselves at the feet of Jesus. And this is the dichotomy of the ministry that Jesus has. And this is the dichotomy of the ministry that we have as well. But Jesus said to these, to these men and women, like, follow me, and they did. And then here's what he does with, with the 12 disciples in Mark 6, verse 7 to 13. He called the 12 and began to send them out two by two, and he gave them authority over the unclean spirits. 
Now, I just want to put this in context again. I really do think that the disciples were teenagers. So think like 13 to 18, maybe Simon Peter was probably 20, okay? So Jesus sitting with a youth group, all right? I I spent a day with with our youth. So Eva and Sarah were there this week, got to do really great things in our city. But Jesus sits with basically this youth group, and here's what he says. He charged them, charges them, take nothing for your journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in your belts, no cell phones either, but to wear sandals, and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you, and they will not listen to you, so they reject you, when you leave, just shake off the dust that's on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. And presumably many people believed as well. Mark doesn't always include all the details, but the trifecta would have been there. Um, Healing, casting out demons, and people believing in Jesus. But I would just say, um, Jesus does this. He does this with teenagers. And if it's me, I'm like, I don't know if they're ready yet. Right? If it's up to me, I'm like, I don't know that I'm willing to take the risk to send out these 12 guys that were probably fighting in their off time that we don't hear about in Scripture. Very young and inexperienced. But here's how they're sent. This is important. They're sent to be dependent on Jesus. They're sent to be dependent on Jesus. His mission is not going to depend on them. It's going to depend on him. How do we know that? Well, he sends them out in a pair. So there's a little community. He sends them out with basic clothes, but not even two tunics. Like if you spill chocolate sorbet on your tunic, like you're just going to have to lick it off and deal with it. You don't have another one to bring with you. But here's what he, gets, what he sends them out with, and this is really important. He sends them out with authority. His authority. The authority they've seen at work to cast out demons, to heal people, to forgive people, to raise little girls from the dead with a whisper, honey, it's time to wake up. That authority was active and moving in this youth group. That authority can change the world because it's not about the experience. It's not about the graduate degrees. It's not about all of the the accolades that you've accumulated. It's not about your followers. It's not about how much influence you have. It's about the authority of Jesus being at work in you and through you. That's how things actually move. And then he sends them to be dependent on the hospitality of God. He doesn't say, hey, by the way, guys, um, I have a few cottages and chalets spread throughout the villages. Like, go find those. Here's the lock key when you get there. I know that there are cameras. Like, I'll be watching you. No, he says, like, go in the hospitality that I'm going to show you in all the different towns that you are going to be visiting. And here's the thing about this plan. There's no fallback. Well, Jesus, what happens if no one gives us food? Then you fast. Well, what happens if we meet danger? Well, you're going to be dependent on the God who can overcome all of these things. This whole mission was set up to be this mission of dependence on God. And they had to learn this. And as disciples, followers of Jesus, if you're a follower of Jesus, you have to learn this. That it's not about how much stuff you can accumulate so that you can feel comfortable in and of yourself. It's about how to live in dependence on him. And sometimes God allows us to go through very bizarre, sometimes painful circumstances so that we learn this. It's not something that he just puts in a little chip, like slides into our temple as we're sleeping, uploads it, we wake up and we're like, I understand dependence on God. It's something that we walk through and we say, I know by experience dependence on God and what this is like so that you become a reliable witness when you speak about, to someone else about what it means to live in dependence on God. And as they go out, two things are going to happen. Either they're going to be received or they're going to be rejected. But Jesus is saying, just keep going. Just keep going. Don't re- let rejection stop the mission from moving forward. Sometimes we encounter rejection or hostility, and we're like, oh, I guess this doesn't work. I guess, I guess I don't have the right words. I guess I'm not gifted enough. I guarantee you in this little group of people, there were probably stutterers. There were probably introverts. There were probably people that were not good with words, not good at telling stories, not good at remembering facts. But Jesus isn't looking for that. 
He's looking for people like we saw in Mark chapter five who used to be possessed with demons who are free from those demons and now get to go back to their home and tell people of what Jesus has done for them. That's, that's our role. That's our privilege that we go and we just witness. And some people are gonna reject it and some people are going to receive it. But it just keeps moving forward. But they had the great privilege of getting to see the kingdom of God explode in some people's hearts. Listen to verse 13 again. And they cast out many demons and they anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. Like how exciting would that be? To get to see people who are oppressed freed, to get to see people who are bound by disease healed and have a whole new outlook on life. That would be exhilarating. That would be so exciting. They had the privilege of seeing that done through them, not just watching Jesus do it. That had been their ministry up till then. Let's go and watch Jesus do this. Now Jesus is saying, I'm going to do it through you. And this is the same thing that he wants to do through you. And that's so hard for us to believe, isn't it? We just think, oh, if only Jesus lived in my neighborhood, my neighborhood would be different. If only Jesus worked at my workplace, oh, then people would really understand who Jesus was. If only Jesus was the preacher, then it wouldn't have to listen to this guy all the time. But the thing is, Jesus is here. Jesus is at your workplace. Jesus is in your neighborhood. He is in your house. He is around you because he's in you. He's working through you. Jesus is, is there. And so we get the same privilege and opportunity to see Jesus working through us. And so one of the things that we need to get over as the church is our unneededness. I don't even know if these are words. I literally just make up words on the spot because it doesn't matter to me. Um, but we get the concept, our unneededness. The idea that uh, someone else is going to do it. Someone else is always going to do it. Someone else will take care of this thing within the church or someone else is going to be on mission in the city and I'll be there and I'll clap for them and I'll support them and I'll encourage them, but someone else is going to do it. We're always looking for someone else to be on mission or to do the thing for us. And that's why it's so easy to treat the church um, like, like a store that we show up at. We just pop into the store you get what you want. You, you might even like hold the door for someone. You might uh, be nice in the store, but then you just leave and no one really knows that you were there, doesn't know that you leave. And that's the temptation in the church is to just like pop in and pop out. And I don't mean like here, we actually have to get out of here at a certain time, right? But that we're not just the church on a Sunday morning or Sunday afternoon. We're the church all the time. And God has gifted you in a specific way that's different than me, which is different from Nehemiah, which is different than Stephen, which is different from Kristen, right? We're all gifted very differently. And it's the gifts as they come together where the real body acts like a body. Uh, I enjoy running and now I'm taking up cycling. And I can't imagine if my right leg just decided, I'm not showing up today. It's like, I wouldn't do neither one of those things. And I feel that so often the church can, can have a limp to it because there are gifts inside of the church that aren't being utilized. Because we, we have this unneededness complex that someone else is just gonna do it and I'm really not needed. And I would say if that's you, well then let us know. Don't stay in that place. And it's so easy to think, well no one notices me. No one knows that I have this gift. Of course we don't. We're not mind readers. We're not like checking in on your life. We don't own the Airbnbs with the cameras. I mean like, oh yeah, we're, we see the gift of encouragement at work, 11 p.m. Friday night. Not that. You have to come and let us know. We, we want for all the gifts to be utilized within our church and on mission. We need the entire church. And your neighborhood needs the light of the world there. And that's you. That's you. That it's no accident that you live where you live, that you work where you work, that you study where you study. That Jesus has put you there for a very specific purpose. And so we have to die to the idea that someone else is going to do it. And we have to die to the idea that, um, that my weakness is going to get in the way of that. Because God makes a promise to us that his, his power is made perfect in our weakness. My goodness. How did Jesus transform the world? through a youth group full of the Spirit of God. 
That's how the world changes. And we're like, yeah, but we're not a youth group. We have some degrees. It's like, ah, that's the problem, isn't it? That we're falling back on things. Instead of falling at the feet of Jesus like everyone did in the last chapter and saying, we don't have what it takes to see people come to you. We don't have what it takes to even live a godly life myself. I need you. I am a man in need of constant revival. Right? Need to breathe lyric that I listened to this morning. I'm a man in need of constant revival. So Jesus, come quickly. I need you for my survival. Right? This is what we need. This is how things move. Now, the Apostle Paul, he planted a lot of churches. He wrote a lot of the Bible. Listen to what he says at the end of his life, final parting words. He says in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 6 to 8, I am already being poured out as a drink offering. That's Bible way of saying, I'm as good as dead. And the time of my departure has come. I've fought the good fight. This is the important part. I've fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Do you know what Paul doesn't say? Hey, Timothy, Check out all the churches I've planted. Look at all the scripture I've written. Look at all the people who have come to follow Jesus because of me. doesn't say any of that. He says, I have been faithful. He doesn't measure his adequacy by success in the things he's done. He says, I have been faithful. Because you know what? Paul didn't plant any of those churches. Jesus planted those churches. And he used Paul to do that. All the people who became followers of Jesus in Paul's life, do you know how they became followers of Jesus? Because Jesus worked through Paul. It's never because of you or because of me. It's always because of the Spirit of God at work in us. Will you let him use you? Will you be faithful? Will you stop trying to control the destiny of this church or the kingdom of God? Like, let him do it. Be like an open vessel that allows for him to work through you. And be faithful. So how are we to be faithful on mission? If we're to be faithful, we're going to see some some fears and unbelief come up. There's going to be a fear of rejection, isn't there? If we're going to be on mission, we're going to be like, oh, what's going to happen if I'm rejected? Well, do you know how we combat that? With the truth that, no, God has accepted me. Ultimately, I'll never be rejected. I'm accepted by him. If you're on mission, do you know what's going to come up? Well, if I'm associated with this person and this person sees me, what are they going to think about me? Jesus hung out with all the drunks. Everyone called Jesus a drunk and a glutton because of the people that he hung out with. How did Jesus overcome that? Because he believed that God's grace was impartial that God's grace was for everyone. So if you deal with, I don't want to hang out with the poor. I don't want to be with the rich. I don't want to be with these people. I don't want to be with the French. I don't want to be with the English. Well, God's grace is impartial. And people's opinions about who you're with, they're nothing, absolutely nothing. If you're on mission, there's going to be lots of unknowns that come up, the what ifs. What if this happens? Well, do you know how you overcome that? You believe in God's sovereignty, I'm sure these disciples had a lot of what ifs. And they say, okay, Jesus, but you're in control. You're the one sending us out on mission. We're going to trust you. If you're going out on mission, there could be a fear. What happens if pain comes? What happens if pain arrives? Well, do you know how we combat that? We know that God's ultimate comfort is Christ. In Christ is enough for us. That I have all the comfort that I need in him. And so therefore, whatever pain comes, there's no pain that can be greater than the comfort that Christ offers to us. If you've ever read the Fo- uh, Fox's Book of Martyrs, you will read stories about people being burned at the stake, having their skin flayed, having their heads chopped off, and they're singing hymns as these things are happening. They're joyfully declaring to the crowds watching them burn about who Jesus is and how they should turn to him. How do they do that in that moment of great pain? Because their comfort in Christ is so much greater than that. If you're going to be on mission, maybe there's a fear that, oh, I'm going to be weak. I don't know how to do things. Well, we get to experience God's power being made perfect in our weakness as we're on mission. As we're on mission, we're going to fear, oh, what if they're not interested and we don't present God as beautiful or powerful or whatever? Well, you get to experience God translating 
our very like weird words and saying sometimes into things that actually make sense to people's hearts and minds. I, I remember sharing about Jesus with people. I had no idea what to say. And I would, I would mix up all kinds of things. And I'd be like, yeah, Jesus died in a tomb and he rose on, on, on the cross. And like, you know, I didn't even know what I was saying. And they're like, yeah, I want to follow him. And I'm like, you, like, seriously? They're like, yeah, like that. Jesus sounds amazing. Like, I've never experienced love like that. I'm like, I, I don't even know that I lined up all my theological points correctly. And they're like, what is theology? I'm like, I, let's just pray, <laughs> right? And it's like Jesus takes these weird things that we say and he translates them into people's, into people's hearts and they come to see him. I remember Jess, this is a confession. Jess and I went to London, uh, England, not London, Ontario, although that's epic too, but London, England. And when we were there, we were searching, we, we were trying to go to a specific church and we couldn't get there. Like the tube is like massive. So we went to a different church. Oh, and I was so critical. Jess can, she was like, be quiet, people can hear you. I was so critical of the preaching. I'm like, this preaching is, is a joke. I'm like, guy doesn't even know what he's talking about. Like, literally, I, it was so confusing. And at the end of his sermon, he says about Jesus' life and death and resurrection and how he loves you. And if you want to receive that today, would you stand up or put up your hands? And all these people raised their hands. And it was like God whispers to me, I'll work however I want to work. And I'm just like, oh, it's not about our slick words. It's not about our neat sermons. It's about the power of God coming and loving and opening up people to understand who he is and see him as beautiful. And I've never openly been critical of someone's sermon while they were preaching again. I repented and learned. But if we're going to be faithful on mission, we have to overcome these fears with what is true. We have to be convinced that we are missionaries. Mission is not something you do. It's who you are that you are full of the Spirit of God and your new identity is that you're part of the family of God and your servants and your missionaries, which means that you are sent out into the world to show and tell of who this God really is. Because if mission is something you do, it's like, well, between five and seven on Friday, like, I'll go be on mission. But if it's who we are, it's like, well, how are we going to do that? That's all of our life. And so if we live a very focused life, a life of mission, and our mission transforms our calendar, how do we do that? Well, here are just a a few things. It's this acronym BLESS. I didn't invent this. This is from someone else. No one really knows the origin of it, so unknown source. Um, But this acronym BLESS, as we're living in our neighborhood, at our workplace, whatever we're doing, do this. Start with B, right? And B is to begin with prayer. That we say, okay, Jesus, I, I'm, I'm arriving at work. Uh, what do you want to do today? Jesus, I'm waking up. Uh, I'm at home. <laughs> what do you want to do today? I'm beginning everything with prayer. I want you to put to death the things that I want to do and get done. And I want for you to put your agenda at the forefront. So we begin with prayer. And then as we're going throughout the day, we're listening to God. God, what, what are you saying? What do you have to say? And we're listening to others as well. Uh, we just moved to a new part of our city, and we went to this uh, gathering, which was legal, public place, all that. Uh, but there were 65 people that were there, I think, or a few more than that, I don't know. And I got to meet a ton of our neighbors, and I was hearing all their stories, and there was adult juice at the, at the event. And so people are being even more open with some of their stories. And I'm just listening, right? I'm listening. These are, these are my new neighbors. These are, these are people that I'm going to spend I don't know how many years with. And what, how, what has life uh, formed them to be? Or how have they been formed? What are, what are their needs? What are, what are the things that they desire? Just listening. And God, what do you, what do you want to do? Do you want to do anything tonight? Do you want me to say anything tonight? How do you want me to encourage? Is there any questions you want me to ask? It's this constant interaction between God and others. And it's this idea that we have to get over ourselves. We're so self-absorbed sometimes in conversations even when we have good intentions that we're thinking, what should I say? What should I say? What should I say? And we're not listening. We're not really listening to the people and valuing what it is that they have to say and processing what what is it that they're saying and allowing for time to go by before we say anything else. So we begin with prayer. We listen to God and to others. We eat with them. We invite people over. You can do that now legally. You can invite people actually into your house. Or you can eat with them on a sidewalk, or you can eat with them, but we can eat with people. 
And as we're eating with them, we, we listen to them. And then the, the S is we serve. So as you're, you're there at these gatherings and you're eating with people and you hear their needs, ah, oh, man, I wish we could get away for a night, but you know we have all these kids and it's like, oh, okay, they need babysitting. We could babysit for them. Or, oh, uh, we, we really would love for our lawn to be mowed, but whatever. It's like, borrow our lawnmower or we'll come mow your lawn. You're listening to what are the needs that people have and how can we actually meet them so that we can serve them. And the last thing is that we share our story, and the story of God with people. So we begin with prayer, we listen to God and others, we eat with them, we're serving and meeting their needs, and then we share the story of God and our story with people. And this doesn't fit into a neat program, does it? Okay, Wednesday night's our blessed night, fit all of these five things into one night. It's like, no, this is as we go. This is as we go. And the results are not really up to you. The call is to be faithful as we're going along. But here's the last part of our text, is that faithfulness can lead to death. Being faithful doesn't necessarily lead to, to rainbows and unicorns, right? Being faithful can actually lead to, to death. Listen to um, the account in Mark 6 of John the Baptist. Mark 6, verse 14. When King Herod heard of it, uh, where Jesus' name had become known, some said, well, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That's why these miraculous powers are at work in him. Others said, Jesus is Elijah. Others said, Jesus is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. Herod already believed in resurrection. Now, I just want to say, like, as we get into this, we're not going to look at all the details. This is a very broken family, very broken family. It was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, and look at how he describes this. His brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. And this is the gospel, isn't it? That when people hear this, they're greatly perplexed. Like, what is this? But we want more. This sounds really good. But an opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter, so his stepdaughter, comes in and danced, and this isn't like a little ballet dance, um, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, ask me for whatever you wish and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mom, what should I ask? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. She came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in the tomb. John had a very vibrant ministry to prepare the way for Jesus to come, and he was preaching that when Jesus does come, everything that we've been longing for is going to be fulfilled. You see, John loved Jesus as an identity, was so wrapped up in him. He was speaking one day, and Jesus walked by, and he said, behold the Lamb of God. Now, John would have spoken about a sacrificial lamb. Behold the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world. This is the one we've been waiting for. When John's ministry uh, was winding down, Jesus had come and all of John's disciples were leaving his place to go follow Jesus. And his disciples came and they're like, John, don't you care that everyone is leaving? They're going to follow Jesus? And John says with a smile like, no, he needs to increase. He needs to get bigger and I need to decrease. He needs to be pushed to the front stage and I need to walk off the stage all together. You see, John was glad to give his neck because his mission was done. His whole mission was to come and make Jesus known. And there's a great freedom. There's a great freedom that comes from having nothing you can lose. Hear that again. There's a great freedom that comes from having nothing that you can lose. Meaning that thing that you have, no one can take away from you. Listen to this quote from Band of Brothers. I think it's the most popular quote in the whole series. 
There are two soldiers, one very experienced, one very inexperienced. The inexperienced one is like peeing his pants at war, right? And the older guy who's done peeing his pants in war looks over at him and says this, the only hope you have is to accept the fact that you're already dead. The sooner you accept that, the sooner you'll be able to function as a soldier is supposed to function. All war depends upon it. The sooner that you accept that you're already dead, the sooner you accept that, the sooner you'll be able to function as a soldier is supposed to function. When you receive the fact that your life is not in you staying alive and having a great RRSP and having longevity and um, having a great car, or great whatever it is, when, when, when you understand that life is not that, you, you're really free. You're really free. In a sense, John, John was already dead. John had already died to himself. John wasn't out to get, you know, people to buy the same camel hair that he was wearing or eat the same locust that he was eating or get a honey named after him. That wasn't what he was out after. He wanted people to know Jesus. And he didn't care what happened to him. He was in prison and he sends his disciples to Jesus and he says, please make sure that he's the one. Because in essence, if he's the one, then I can die. As a 30-something-year-old man, I can die. My job is absolutely done. So how do we go into life day-to-day like John? How do we go into life like that soldier? Once you accept the fact that you're already dead, then you're ready. How do we do this? Well, Paul, we're finishing up. Paul wrote in Galatians 2.20, this verse that probably some of you have memorized. It's very, very powerful. Paul says this, while he's alive, this is, this is the tension. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So if you ask Paul, Paul, who are you? Well, Christ, Christ is living in me. Yeah, but like really Paul. No, like, really, really, Dwight. Christ living in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, so the life I'm living 9 to 5 or 24-7, the life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. So this call is that as we're living our lives, it's no longer we who live, No longer do we need to fret about results or try and control things. No longer do we have to pander and beg for favor in the court of human opinion. We are free. And if you die along the way, I've told my wife this before, but my deepest desire when I became a follower of Jesus at 22 was to go to some place where I would die before I was 25. Not like on an epic adventure, but I wanted to go and tell people about Jesus and die so that I could go be with him. I was obsessed with Jesus. I just wanted him. If you die along the way, listen to what Dallas Willard says. If you die with Jesus Christ, God will walk you out of your tomb into a life of incomparable joy and purpose inside his boundless and incomparable love. Paul said, for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. Why? Because if I die, Jesus is walking into my tomb, grabbing my hand, and bringing me into incomparable joy and purpose inside boundless and incomparable love. Death does not get the final answer. Jesus on the cross, the story ends with resurrection. And so the mission that you and I are part of never ends in failure. If you're rejected, that is not the end. The end is not failure. It always ends with Jesus victorious, overcoming everything that is against his church. Jesus said to his disciples, again, looking at this youth group, he says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it, and I'm gonna use you to do it. And so as we live, Jesus brings the results. Our, our, our text ends in chapter six, verse 30, with these disciples. 
returning to Jesus, and they told Jesus all that they had done and taught. So how do we apply this? Well, what fears need to die? What fears need to die in you? Do you have to accept that quote? The only hope you have is to accept the fact that for you to live as Christ and to die is gain. When are you going to embrace that? That's what's most true. You don't leave to go and see what you can get and, and grab from the city and from people and what dopamine kicks you can get. You go with open hands to serve with the goodness of God wherever you are. When are you going to embrace the acceptance of God on your life? That he is not waiting for you to do one more thing so he can be pleased with you. He is pleased with you in Christ. You see, God's plan A for his mission is a spirit-filled church. That's it. Nothing else. There's no plan B. It's the spirit of God at work in you in the normal, ordinary things of life. That's how your heart is going to be transformed, and that's how this city is going to be transformed. So what will change this coming week? If, if that lands, if that coin drops into the vending heart, or the vending machine of your heart, what will change this week? What will change? How will you care for people? How will you serve people? How will you eat with people? How will you listen to God? And how will you share your story? Jesus wants to transform this city through you. Let me pray and then we'll respond. Jesus, you are a great God who has overcome death. You are a great God who has brought life. And if we die on mission, and when we die in this life, you are going to take all those who are in you and raise us into a life of incomparable joy in your presence, one with unfading love that death can never touch again. Thank you, Jesus, that you have put a chokehold on death, and death is slowly dying, and life with eternal value, meaning, and purpose will define us for all of eternity. Holy Spirit, I want to ask that you would come and fill us now. Fill us with expectation and anticipation. Would you bring your gifts to work? Would you cause for words of encouragement and prophetic words uh, to come? Would you cause for um, people that need to be healed uh, to identify that and that we would be able to ask you for, for healing. And thank you that you're a God who, who does heal and, and ultimately, in the end, will heal everything. Thank you, Jesus, that you are here in our presence. Thank you that you love this city more than we do. Thank you that you love us more than we do. And would you help us to respond accordingly? We love you. Amen.